I hope you enjoyed the. Um, uh, we had even more variety this morning. Um, if you're if you're new today and you're not used to also having oatmeal, everybody around the table, let anybody who's new today know that t uh, breakfast today had more menu items than most Shoney buffets did 25 years ago. So uh, thank you for uh, for uh, Bobby and for Leo uh, cooking this morning. It sure is nice to come here and smell good cooking and get to share the time with you guys. We're going to do announcements after our speaker, and so um, I have the, uh, the privilege and responsibility to introduce a fellow preacher's kid. And so, um, as you probably know, preacher's kids live with, with lots of scrutiny, so I was a little worried about Phil getting up and speaking in front of a group. I remember the first time I got tagged as a preacher's kid, I was in like middle school, and I was in a home ec course. And we cooked a meal, and they needed somebody to pray over the meal. Now, that tells you something about public schools. Uh, I'll call that 35, maybe 40 years ago. Um, but you, you're, you're expected to be able to pray in public and speak in public. And so Phyllis told me that he doesn't like to speak in public. He doesn't like to be up in front of people. But despite that, he's the executive director for Lunches for Learning. So there's a contradiction in there someplace. Um, it's a pleasure to get to introduce him. I, I, I think many of us might have met some of his other family members. There might even be a building or two named after them on this <laughs> campus. Um, so I'm not sure what level of notes you should take. I know we are going to record this, and later we'll, we'll, we'll go after it for historical accuracy's sake. Um, just to be clear, he, Phil now lives in Alpharetta, Georgia, but he actually, anybody want to guess when he graduated from high school? This is always fun. 85, we have an 85, an 85. Anybody want to go younger or older? We need one more guess. 83, 83, Roger's headed in the right direction. Shall we go again? 81. 81, Sam, you're a little too low. Must be 1982. Does anybody remember what they were doing in 1982 in June? No. Apparently Phil was graduating from Roswell High School. And so this is why this is why you don't ever give me anything to read from. Um, and then later he went to uh, Lagrange College, I believe that's in Lagrange, Georgia. I was just there last week. It's amazing. It's still there. Um, and he's been the executive director for Lunches for Learning since 2016. Uh, he's been uh, development director for Camp Gibson. Anybody been to Camp Gibson before? Glisten. It does say. It's spelled right here, just so that you're wondering. It's my mistake, not not his. I'm Eric Stevens, by the way. I'll be mispronouncing everything today. Um, and he has been 11 years in higher education arena and eight years in the credit and financial services industry. I don't think that means he took up the offering, but I might be wrong. Um, and he has three kids. Uh, he has uh, uh, Megan, who is 24. Uh, Amelia, am I pronouncing that right? 21. And I'm guessing he has a high school senior at home, Jimmy, who graduate, graduate even better. So uh, as soon as he's off the payroll, you can retire, right? Is that the way no. it's supposed to work? No, they no? come back. So I have a feeling we're going to learn a little bit about Phil. And I know I have appreciated the when I when I joined this church, Malone was the senior pastor. And so. You get to know people by their families, and I, my family kind of got to know this church via the choir, and I remember as we were getting to know uh, the, the rest of this church that Malone would always hug anybody who would give him a hug, 
and and I kind of I'm always I, you know I miss that about them. Every person seems to have their way of getting to know you. Uh, for me, I make you know some mistake in front of you, and you get to point it out, and that that always provides an opening. So Phil, now that I have wandered around for a little while, uh, let's introduce Phil Dotson. I'm going to flip to a page in this notepad. I'm not going to read anything to you. These are just notes, just a little outline to make sure I stay on task. I am not a morning guy, uh, and that's something that Malone shares with me. He's not here today. Uh, <clears throat> I will also say Eric and I do share some things in common. Being preacher's kids is one. Uh, Malone was also senior pastor here when I joined the church as well. <laughs> a lot of a lot of similarities there, and I have uh, folks in this room who represent several different stages of my life. There are people here who knew me when I was in high school, a few, and some who knew me when I was in college and uh, away from the church for a while, like a lot of people do during those ages, and people who know me today in my professional life today, and so um, I love, always love coming back to Roswell UMC. It, um, I'm standing in a place that I remember as parking lot, <laughs> and a, a, a fellowship hall half the size, and a, a youth hut that you really was a tiny little house before it got expanded. Um, just a, a lot of memories, a lot of memories here. I love coming back. Um, I did get a chance to listen to last month's meeting, and when that meeting took place in September, it was just a few weeks after we just had a reunion of our youth choirs from the 70s and 80s. We met in this room on Sunday. On Saturday, we were in the music suite and just singing and having fun and reuniting. So I saw people there I hadn't seen in 40 years, and I'm only 55. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> um, that, was, that was a lot of fun. I have a lot of memories here. And um, the, the best memories from my high school days are here. I have yet to attend in 30 Seven years have, since I graduated high school, I have yet to attend a high school reunion. Nothing wrong with high school reunions at all, but I have not attended a single one. I've attended reunions of my youth group and my youth choir here at Roswell UMC because this is where my best friends were. This is where I spent so much of my time back in those days when youth actually spent a lot of time at churches, which really doesn't happen the same way anymore. Uh, our Sundays back then were... It's my favorite day of the week, in part because I spent the whole day here with my friends. We'd have Sunday school together, and we'd uh, an hour of worship, and then lunch, and go home for maybe an hour or so. And then I'm right back here, say 2.30 in the afternoon for handbell rehearsal, choir rehearsal, dinner, youth, choir, youth dinner, MYF. And then after MYF, we'd go to somebody's house and do some, what we called fish, fellowship in someone's home. We just could stretch out the day and spend the whole Sunday with my best friends. Um, and all of that took place here at Roswell UMC. And that's so a lot of memories here. Uh, back before you built the uh, ACC basketball arena, here, that was John and Judy Wolf's house was somewhere in there. And um, also uh, did hear uh, some discussion about the upcoming Art Rogers golf tournament. <laughs> and or the Malone Dodson golf tournament and I guess the one thing I would say about that is that dad is just really glad that it's not the Malone Dodson memorial <laughs> he's really proud of that point that he can actually still attend it and be part of it um, 
the uh, the reunion that I mentioned just a few weeks ago, back in August, really was um, uh, it was that I have to say honestly that was one of the best weekends I've had in a really long time. And of course, wedding and birth of children aside, uh, that is one of the best weekends I've had in a really really long time. So. I'm thankful to the folks here at RUMC who embraced us and gave us an opportunity to do that. Um, Eric also mentioned the concept of being a PK. Are there any other PKs, preachers, kids in the room? It is a, it's an interesting existence. And I would say uh, having seen church work from the eyes of what I, what Steve and Melanie and I used to refer to as us as the Parsonage family, I would say, uh, yeah. <laughs> tip your waiters. Um, the what I remember most is that two things. One is that we praise our pastors too much, and we criticize our pastor too much. We do a little bit of both, really. And I've been guilty of it myself. And when when it's your dad receiving, especially when it's criticism, and it happens, it just it does. We're a, a church is an organization of human beings. We are. We're flawed. All of us are flawed, but we're trying. We're here because we're trying to be the best people we can be. Uh, but I would uh, translate my experience as a preacher's kid to say, be kind, be forgiving, and offer grace to, and I mean, any church staff, even the guy who's checking his phone. <laughs> While the program is underway. <laughs> it's a youth in need. Read the scripture. Remember? Yes, read the scripture, yeah. I haven't shared a scripture. Uh, just show grace. Uh, being a preacher's kid is an interesting existence. Every kid has an interesting existence, but um, you live in a fishbowl when you're a preacher's kid. Everybody watches everything you do. It's harder in a small church to hide and just be one of the kids. It's a little easier. We had a pretty big youth ministry even then, and a little easier, but if you're if you and you're if you're 12 years old and your buddy is 12 years old and you both get into a little bit of trouble, they don't look at him and say you ought to know better. I ought to know better because my dad's. But we're both 12. Um, what what made being a preacher's kid a little more interesting was also being the middle child. And I heard was it Rick last month? Rick was the speaker. He's a middle child. I heard that when from his presentation. And some of you, if you're a firstborn, you're thinking, who cares? It's about me. No, that's what firstborns think. It's about me. No, the middle child, the forgotten one. And I have, I have proof of that, that we, we joke about being the forgotten middle children. And uh, a few years ago, when I worked at Camp Gibson in Dahlonega, <laughs> uh, spent a good 10 years at Gibson and um, been there since 1925, and it's never been Gibson, but... Um, I was invited to actually preach. Uh, occasionally, I'd be invited to preach in my role at, at working for the conference in Carrollton, Carrollton First Methodist Church, and I had to be out there early. And so my mom, Charlotte, agreed to take my kids, let them spend the night with her because I had to get up and leave early. And then she brought them to church here with her that Sunday while I was in Carrollton. My wife was working that day. So um, there are the kids sitting with mom in the sanctuary, the ACC basketball arena, and a current member of the church came up to her and said, who do you have with you? They had never met my, this person had never met my kids. Nice lady, not going to share her name. You would know her, probably. Um, and so she said to mom, who, who do you have with you? And mom said, well, these are Phil's kids. And this, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. The words that came out of this lady's mouth were, well, I know Steve, and I know Melanie, 
but who's Phil? <laughs> That's a quote. Who's, who's Phil? So this concept of the forgotten middle child, is, the struggle is real. It's real. Um, but Steve and Melanie and I were all two years of two year gaps and uh, all three grew up in the in the youth program here. And uh, Steve, of course, went into the family business <laughs> and um, Melanie is just adorable. And she's our younger sister, the princess of the family and all that. And so can do no wrong. And I, I adore her. Um, but because Steve went into the ministry in the North Georgia Conference, then a lot of times when people meet me, if they know the family, one of the first lines I get is, I'm not making this up either. So you're the one who didn't become a minister. <laughs> right? I'm not lying. And I have, over the years, I had plenty of time to come up with some good retorts, and I've used them every time. I use one of them. Um, my, uh, my first is, uh, yeah, I chose to actually work for a living. <laughs> That's my preferred, yeah. I didn't. I didn't go become a preacher. I decided to actually work for a living. Or I like to work five days a week, not just one. Or every family needs a lay leader or SPRC chair. Or, uh, but the, the retort that gets the most interesting reaction when I hear, you're the one who didn't become a minister, is when I say, who's to say that I didn't? Silence and the raised eyebrows and the fur. What do you mean? What are you talking about? I just said, you didn't become a minister. And you said, well, who's to say I didn't? They're, they're really confused. When I, to, to elaborate on that, uh, a few years ago, I attended a, a funeral for Bill Powers. Many of you will remember Bill Powers years ago. He was a uh, scoutmaster here, and the family grew up in the church. And his youngest son, Mike, and I are still to this day very good friends and stay in touch. Went graduate high school together, but went to Greens, Greensboro, out I-20, past Madison, to uh, to the funeral. When I went into the men's room at the church, I walked up to the, the vanity where the sinks are, and there were three sinks, if I remember right, three or four. And at each sink, at the base of the mirror, right in front of the sink, was a message that was permanently attached to the to each station. And the words were, you are looking at a minister. It was at every sink. And this wasn't the clergy bathroom. <laughs> This is the bathroom that everybody used. I'm assuming the same message was in the women's room, but I don't know for sure. But you walk up to the to the vanity, to the sink, to wash your hands or fix your hair or whatever you're doing there, and you see the message. You are looking at a minister. That, that's kind of the point I'm making when I give that, that answer to that question that I often get. The point is, we're all called to be ministers. We're not all called to be clergy or to be in the pulpit, or to be in youth ministry, or music ministry. We are all called to be ministers. In whatever walk of life we roam, we're all called to be ministers. And that throws people for a loop sometimes, because they see what Tom does, or Nancy, or other preachers in the church, and say, I don't want to do that. That's not necessarily what you are called to do, or what I am called to do. Um, virtually all people of faith, all Christians, at some point usually multiple times in their existence, wonder if I'm doing enough. Am I doing, I'm a Christian, I believe, I profess, I attend, I tithe, I'm prayers, presence, gifts, service, witness, I'm there. But am I doing enough? And I, I would bet everybody in this room and everybody listening to us, wherever you might be, has wondered more than once in your life, 
Am I doing enough? It's usually when you hear a really good sermon or you attend a really powerful retreat or have some kind of spiritual moment at some point or you hear some speaker who talks about traveling the world and changing the world and everybody puts on a good face when they do a, a speech like this. It may be at times like that. You wonder, I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm not Billy Graham. Am I doing enough? It's the question, am I, being the, am I the man God wants me to be? And how hard is it to come up with the answer to that question? It's hard. It really is. I don't know that we'll ever get the answer on this side of heaven if that we're doing enough. I don't know. I am fortunate in this regard. I'm fortunate to work for Lunches for Learning in that I get to every day, everything I do on any given work day, whatever day that might be, is working for the betterment of some people who are struggling through life, who are These are people who wake up in Honduras every day wondering how, not what are my kids going to eat today, but how am I going to find food for my children today? It's the kind of thing that none of us has ever had to worry about. And it was when I was introduced to Lunches for Learning in 2017, it was a real eye-opener for me. And every one of us has seen a teenager, child, grandchild, niece, nephew, some stand in front of a full pantry and say, we've got nothing to eat. Right? We may have done that ourselves in front of a pantry that is fully stocked, a refrigerator that's full, and probably a second or even third refrigerator in their garage or basement, right? I'm defining North Fulton right now in the life we lead. There should be no guilt there. We should never feel guilty for the the life that we have built here, ever. But the perspective that it gives, when I was introduced to Lunches for Learning, the concept of people who wake up and don't know if they're going to be able to find food for their children that day. And I cannot relate to what that feels like as a parent, as a dad. I, my kids had a tortilla yesterday. Will I be able to find a tortilla for them today? Not what are we having for breakfast? Am I going to be able to find any food at all today? Because I've got maybe a few coins to work with and no job prospects. I can't read and write because when I was a kid, I had to drop out of school to feed myself, to find food for myself. And that perpetuates itself every generation when you have to leave school to go find food. So I'm fortunate to work in an organization that every day is working to make the lives of those kids better. We have a lot of support here at Roswell UMC. A number of you, most of you have heard of Lunches for Learning or involved with Lunches for Learning in some way. And we're truly grateful for the generosity this church and many individuals continue to show for Lunches for Learning. But the reason I say I'm fortunate to have that experience is because it puts me in an environment where I am helping these people every single day. Am I doing enough? You would probably say I'm doing more than enough because you feel like I'm doing more than you. You might, you might feel like I'm doing more than you are on this journey that we're supposed to be taking together and being Christ-like. That could be the perception. When things go well with lunches for learning, this is to go back to that preacher parsonage family perspective. When things go really well for someone in a role like mine, we get too much praise heaped on us, more than we should because we're not doing this solo. Whatever it is we're involved with, changing our little corner of the world, Honduras for us, Kenya for others, Philippines for others, wherever it might be, downtown Atlanta, wherever it is, we're doing our part, but there are so many other people involved in what we're doing. And all of those people who are helping us change lives in Honduras are asking themselves, am I doing enough? And they're literally changing the trajectory of the lives of these kids in Honduras. I'm fortunate that I get to see this every day. 
Last week I was in Honduras. A week ago, well, uh, I came home on Thursday, but a week ago, Wednesday, I was at a school, and uh, it's one of the newer schools invited into our program last year in 2018. And I was introduced to three siblings who attend this school, whose father died earlier this year. He was working, he finally got some work working on a plantation or an agricultural environment. I don't know the details. I didn't ask too many questions. But he was working with pesticides. There are no regulations, and he got poisoned. He died. These three kids, and they have a younger sibling who's not school age yet, and their mother can't work. She doesn't have any skills. She can't She can't read and write. And here she is. Her, her husband has died, and she's got these four kids, three in school, one about to start school. And... It just rips your heart out to think uh, this woman who has to who finds out her or learns her husband is sick and then rapidly loses him. What is she going to do? He was the one who was able to work and earn something occasionally to keep some food in the kids' bellies. She can't do that. The concept that those three kids it takes them forty five minutes to walk to school. They walk together and there's a meal waiting for them and they're able to to be healthy. They're able to stay in school. They're able to learn. They're able to, to create a better life. The school goes all the way through ninth grade, which is actually kind of unusual. Sixth grade is kind of the max in most of the communities in rural Honduras. I met those three kids last week, and it's a visible, tangible symbol of what we as an organization are doing. And a lot of people here at RUMC are helping us do that. And those same people are wondering on a frequent basis, am I doing enough to be Christ-like? And they're changing these people's lives. No matter what you're involved with, whether it's the Drake House or Habitat for Humanity or Red Cross, what uh, UMCOR, whatever you're involved with, we have a generous nature here in the U.S. And what I've learned, one of the many things I've learned culturally about Central America and Honduras in particular is there is zero uh, uh, history of charitable giving of any kind in Honduras. In Honduras, because the life has been such a struggle for most of the country, you got the wealthy elite up at the top and everybody else is struggling. And for most, for most of them, it's what I've got, I earned. Why would I give any of it away? Because it ain't much. So that sense of, of generosity just isn't there. But we are such a generous country here. We are, we tithe our churches, we support family members, and we're still looking for other things we can do because we're so guilty we feel so guilty that we're not doing enough. Um, I haven't spent my entire career in the nonprofit sector. It's where I am. I started in higher education, and I'm in the nonprofit sector here, but I've wedged in between there is a uh, corporate stint of eight years. What I've learned, having been in multiple environments, is that some, particularly in the corporate sector, some environments make it pretty tough for us to live an example of Christ. Is that fair to say? Some of the environments we are uh, living in, working in, make it tough. It's pretty easy. <coughs> when I worked at Camp Glisten, it was pretty easy to be a person of faith because we started and ended every meeting with a prayer, and it was intentional, and we took turns praying, and some of us are better at it than others because we're preacher's kids, right? <laughs> we're closer to him because we're preacher's kids? No. We took turns. We pray at every, me- at every uh, meeting really care about each other and we live in the church environment makes it a lot easier than when you're in a corporate environment and even with the environments of today employers of today talk about work work life balance right have you ever heard that term work life balance they want you to have work life balance until it's time to deliver that project to the client or until you have a a, a system error that affects 
uh, millions of cardholders across the country or policyholders or whatever, and then suddenly work-life balance isn't quite as important as getting that fix in for the client before month end or before peak season or whatever. And uh, there's only one time for that granddaughter to graduate from preschool. But I'm sorry, that project is moving into production that day and we need you here. I only have one maternal grandmother who died. And I know you'd like to go to that funeral. However, it's a little tough sometimes to live the example of Christ, to be that person in these environments that say we want you to have a good balance. But when push comes to shove, bottom line is the bottom line. Every job has its challenges. Every organization we're involved with has challenges because it's people and people are messy. We're just messy. Relationships are messy. Whatever those relationships are, friendships, families, in-laws, Lord have mercy, in-law relationships are messy. I'll tell you about my mother-in-law sometime. No, her name is Judy and I love her. This is being recorded. I remember there was a period of time, seven-year period, where uh, my wife, Tracy, and I actually worked for the same company in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, this is one of those companies that talked about work-life balance, and family is important, and they meant it. They really meant it. Our CEO at the time was Jim Blanchard with Synovus, Synovus company. And uh, However, there was one particular experience that my wife, Tracy, had that really opened our eyes, and she was, uh, it was uh, one of our biggest clients at that time was the Bank of America, and a system error had occurred that literally did affect millions of cardholders across the country, Bank of America cardholders, and our system is the, is the system that manages their credit card accounts. And there are performance incentives and performance penalties. Those concepts ring a bell for a lot of you. And when a major error occurs, the penalties are what kick in. Uh, and based on the number of cardholders affected or people affected or systems affected, And in this particular case, uh, a system error had caused an outage that affected a large number of cardholders. And my wife was the point person on the the team that was correcting the problem and communicating with the client as fixes were going in. And when it came time to have the conversation about the impact to their business, my wife, Tracy, was told to lie to the client. The problem was our fault, and she was told to tell the client it was your fault. And with certain systems, it's just convoluted enough that you can say that, and there's a way to make them believe it. Right, Jim? There's a a way to get them to believe it was their fault, or at least plant a seed of doubt. And so there's my wife. She has seconds to decide, what do I do? This is one of the most ethical people I know. That's why I married her. One of the reasons I married her. Honest, ethical, hardworking, loyal, loyal, and there's the rub. And when the when the uh, senior the executive vice president tells her the senior director to tell the client it's their fault and is waiting for her response to see whether she's going to continue in her employment because she did or did not do what she was told she had to make a decision and she lied to the client and to this day regrets that it was it was about money but to her it was about so much more than just money how do I live this example how do I live the life that I say that I that I live, this faith walk that I'm on? How do I live a Christ-like life in an environment like that where we have those kind of pressures and seconds or minutes to make a decision on what to do? Uh, the, the closest um, I've ever come to living in hell was a job I had in Buckhead. It was 13 months of the most misery I've ever experienced in terms of having the work environment. I took a job probably because of the salary. 
and because it got me back to the Atlanta area. For that, I'm grateful. But the the culture that I worked my way into in that role was just so toxic. Uh, you have so little power, so little control over that when you're just one of the minions. When just one, whether you're a manager or not, it doesn't matter. And I remember the the company's TransUnion. It's one of the three credit bureaus. Office here in Atlanta, headquartered in Chicago, but this office is in Buckhead. And it was so toxic. It was a miserable place to work. Highest salary I've ever had. Probably will never get back to that salary level, and I'm okay with that because of the misery that I attached to what came with it. <clears throat> but there was a woman there who, uh, after the fact, I realized that I wasn't listening to her. I wasn't hearing her. Her name was Temper, Temper Hughes. I'll never forget her, and I only knew her for about a year. Temper was her name. She was such a strong Christian, and I would. she was a receptionist. She was the one who received guests and calls as they came in. And she had such a strong faith, and I would occasionally, she and I would talk because we're both people of faith, both struggling in this toxic environment. And she said to me so many times, Phil, we need to be praying. We need to be praying for the leadership, the management, everybody here who might be struggling. And I got to tell you, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see past my own fog of woe is me. I am so miserable here. I couldn't see it. I had an opportunity, and she was presenting me with an opportunity. She was opening the door for me to say, take the focus off yourself. Be a minister. Be the minister to these people. They need it. Everybody here needs it. And it, she was right. And so I, um, I eventually was told that they didn't need me anymore. And I, it was a layoff, a job elimination, doesn't matter, severance package and all that stuff. In other words, I wasn't fired for cause. They just didn't need me anymore. And for guys, that's tough to receive. It's a tough message for anybody, but especially for guys, because we put so much pride in being the breadwinner or the bacon bringer homer or whatever we want to call ourselves. Uh, it was it was a blessing, but I, I realized after I got separated from the environment and was able to then finally see things clearly, because I got that fog of woe is me was gone. I realized the opportunities I missed to be a minister to people who needed it so badly, probably needed it more than I did. I just couldn't see it. And so I started, uh, at, soon after that, I would, it was when I started working for Camp Listen, I, when I would drive through town uh, uh, on 400, headed either direction, as you go under the, uh, what, the Buckhead Bridge, what, is that what it's called? Buckhead, whatever, the Marta Station. Just after you come under it, you can see, I can see the building where I worked at that time. And I started at that point doing what I should have done a year earlier and pray for those people. This goes back to 04, 05. So it's several years ago that I worked there. But still to this day, when I drive through, it's gotten to the point now, God knows what I'm going to say before I get there. He's kind of Presbyterian in that way. He knows it's coming. Uh, And so I've gotten to the point now where as I drive through there, it's just blah, blah, blah. I point and I say, blah, blah, blah. Lord, you know what I'm saying right now. And you know, I'm trying to make up for what I didn't do before. I could have been a minister, and I wasn't. I was in a corporate environment. I wasn't preaching anywhere. I had opportunity to minister to people, and I didn't do it. I obviously regret that, and I uh, do it as much as I can now to make up for, to make penance for that. So this goes back to the, the Greensboro First United Methodist Church sign on the mirror. You, when you look in a mirror, you are looking at a minister. It means we have opportunities every single day, including today, to minister to people. If you decide you want to ask yourself the question, am I doing enough? Just remember the fact that you're asking that question means you're on the right track. 
And the, the final point I would make is that we seem to think that there's some big scoreboard in the sky, some tally board somewhere. We hear phrases like um, make disciples, making disciples for Christ, for the transformation of the world. You know, I met this church slogan. I, I butchered it, but for the transformation of the world, make disciples. Am I doing that? Is there somebody, is there a van of white somewhere turning numbers every time I bring somebody to Christ? And is somebody else doing more than I am? I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not Mother Teresa. And I'm here to tell you, there is no scoreboard in the sky. There's no, uh, one of the songs we sang together at the choir reunion, the youth choir reunion, was go ye into all the world. And the next phrase is, and preach my gospel to every creature. And that can be intimidating. Preach my gospel to every creature. I'm not out there preaching. My point is, we have opportunities to do that, to minister to people every single day. There are people who are hurting right now. You will come in contact with them today. And sometimes it's just a smile. Sometimes it's, you look like something's bothering you. What's up? It's just, you're not saying, come to church so I can get you to sign the register and show that I brought you to church. That's not what it's about. It's about the people you're going to encounter today who are hurting. And you may never even know it, but your encounter with them at work, at home, in the mall, do people still go to malls, at Avalon, at wherever, you have the opportunity to be the minister for those people every single day. I'm proud that I have a chance to impact lives of children in Honduras in such a dramatic way. But there are so many other people out there hurting, sometimes just as much. We just don't know about them. If you're asking yourself, am I doing enough? Am I being Christ-like? Am I the man God wants me to be? If you're asking yourself that question, you're on the right track. I thank you for the time today. So I was just making certain I could call him up in a minute to pray us out. You know, it's one of the things about being... Yes, sir, more. Does he have time for Q&A? Do you want to take some questions? I'm happy to. Come take some questions. Yeah. Dave? I'll start. <laughs> Does Hunter have a large enough food for most No. Questions about the the uh, agriculture in Honduras and can they support the people of Honduras on there? The, most of the agriculture that takes place in Honduras takes place on really nice soil that is owned by a corporation or a wealthy family. And the people we serve in southern Honduras don't qualify as they've been literally marginalized for centuries, since around the 1400s when the Spaniards arrived. They became the nobility. They pushed the the marginal people out to the places they didn't want to live, and they've been there ever since. So they're living in areas where they can, can't grow enough food to even feed a family much. So uh, a lot of wealth in the, in the hands of very few people, and all, all those people own the agriculture. But for the middle class, women and anywhere in Honduras. The middle class is just as narrow as the wealthy up top, and everybody else <laughs> is just struggling for survival. It's survival, and it's... Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, it's the Philippines, it's Ghana, it's uh, Kenya. Uh, it's all over the world. It's similar you know, all over the world. But in Honduras, these people just don't. One question I often get is, why do these people live there? If it's so miserable, why do they live there? Why don't they go somewhere else? All right? It's a, a very American question to ask. The, the point is, if you decide, any of us decided to go live somewhere else, what's the first thing we would do? We'd get our house ready to sell. Because we live in an asset that can can fund that transition, whatever that transition looks like, wherever we're going to live. But if you wake up every day in a, a shack made of mud and sticks that's worth zero, 
you can't read or write because you had to drop out of school to find food when you were a kid. No job opportunity. There's no place else to go. We are their ticket to a better life, whatever that might look like. Yes. If I may, we'll find something started this route, sir. But we started working Zagapa. The big eye opener, me, Zagapa. Now, they're the wealthy. Their notion, their time getting in a car, driving to the southern part of the help, very new to them. Why would I do that? Why would I do that? Exactly. And yet, over now the years we've worked with them to watch the cost you're being brought them to the idea of helping. But that is I think I think the concept that is very similar to a lot of people who never got in their car and just help homeless people. Absolutely. Not give money in a physical. But that, that, I think that's human nature. Yeah. There's a lot of those chair some serving. It's, you didn't do it. You, how can Well, I don't want this to be too self-serving. It's not. Uh, but it, so I'm bringing it up. Thank you for that. Uh, the, the way to help virtually any organization like ours is to make financial gifts to the organization so that we can carry on what we're doing in country. Any any organization that is anchored where they operate, like we are, uh, making in-kind gifts is nice, but if you you can't donate food because then we have to carry it to Honduras or ship it to Honduras. We'd rather buy it there. Uh, that's that's the way to help. We, we beg people to travel with us to Honduras to see it firsthand. Not only to see how effective what we're doing is and our the efficiencies in our system, but just to experience the gratitude of the people. So we'd love for anyone in this room who wants to go with me to Honduras, I'll go whenever you're ready to go. I'll host the trip. A couple of times. Who has been? Yeah, you guys have been with Yes. Them. Yes, question. Good question. Proud to say we're in, uh, we started in one school in 05, 15 years, and 41 now. 41 schools. We got a, a list of five or six that are ready to be added. We're working on how to, to reach those communities. But 41 schools, we're just over 1,900 kids today are going to receive lunches. The only meal they get all day. It's, uh, we're, we have opportunity for growth, smart growth. I get a lot of questions about what, what was referred to a few times as the Honduran caravans. They weren't Honduran caravans. They happened to originate in San Pedro Sula, Honduras, because that's a convenient place for people from five or six countries to converge, most of whom are opportunistic, not necessarily fleeing the poverty and the the, uh, the, the crime and the cities. But um, you're right, if, if more people are better able to support themselves and their families, then people don't have to leave their families and their countries to come here to live a, a desperate existence here, sometimes even worse than what they live, living in the shadows and all. Yes? We buy everything there. The only thing we don't buy there is the, the, the multivitamin that kids get at the end of each meal uh, that we buy in, in Oklahoma from a nonprofit there. We do carry those there. But everything else, rice, beans, tortillas, powdered milk, oil, sugar, the pots and pans when we bring a new school into the program to be able to cook, the bowls to eat out of, everything we buy right there in Honduras. So you're helping the Honduran economy when you allow us to make these purchases in Honduras, and that helps the whole system too. That's sort of Yes. There's enough. There are enough resources there to feed everybody. It's just the the government doesn't want to feed kids in school, and that's hard for us to hear. Over 20 million kids in the U.S. receive lunch at school every day, free or reduced price, one or the other. And we don't question that a bit. We, if they're hungry, we want them to have food at school. Our tax dollars, 20 million kids every day receive free or reduced lunch in school here in the U.S., and it's zero in hundred. If they don't have resources. They don't eat because they're they have to bring their own food. I start the sack one. way behind. Oh, way behind. But I will. One other piece of this. Uh, our our founder Ron Hicks, of course, died earlier this year. It was uh, kind of sudden. He was struggling with multiple myeloma, and his heart just gave out. It couldn't just started treatments. But when when he started the program, he took into the into the formulation of this program 
his perspective from growing up in Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania, where the kids who received the free lunches had to go to the front of the line. So you're immediately tagging the kids who are poor as poor. You poor kids get in the front of the line and you're singled out by it because of it. Sixth and seventh graders who qualified for the free lunches wouldn't eat them because they didn't want to be tagged at sixth and seventh grade as the poor kid. Kindergartners don't really realize it, but older kids do. We treat everybody the same. Everybody, you have to be in school to receive lunch, but everybody who's there gets lunch. Some of those kids can probably afford food, some. 8%, 10% of them maybe, but we're trying to reach all those who don't and we don't single anybody out. Yes. Kids. Yes, that's right. That's a very, it's a very good question. It's still not going to be easy. Living in Honduras is just not easy, but it's, it's made easier and you're given that sense of hope when you have the ability to read and write. When it comes down to who you're going to hire, one example is the little girl Ron Hicks met on the border crossing in 04, who Annabelle was her name, the, the reason for the creation of the program. She was begging on a border crossing in 04. He, Ron stayed with her and helped her get all the way through high school, actually, uh, because of their connection. And then she, uh, one of the places she went to work was in a cafe, helping to manage the books in a cafe because she had a high school diploma. She could read and write and count, and she had a better life because she was educated. It's as simple as that. Some of these kids become auto mechanics or uh, plumbers or uh, one, I know one student who actually made two, got through two years of university and became what they call an accountant. We would call a clerk, but a white-collar job, eight to five, Monday through Friday benefits, and completely changed his life. His name was, we call him Roger Rohare, so it's pronounced. Uh, there, it's it's still a struggle, and they usually have to go somewhere else to a city somewhere else in the country, live with family members or somebody, because there are no jobs where we operate. There's nothing there. People ask if there's any crime there, and the answer is no, because there's nothing to steal, and that's that's really true. So they usually have to go somewhere else. But if it comes down to somebody who has a sixth grade education and can read and write, and somebody who dropped out of school in first grade, who's going to get the job? That's we want to provide that opportunity for more of those kids. It's very obvious. That's right. And these these kids, uh, how many of you helped your kids or grandkids with homework? All of us, right? Well, if you didn't make it through past second or third grade, you can't help your kids with fourth and fifth and sixth grade homework. These parents are struggling even with that. So the life, the role of the teacher is so much more important there. But once these kids get through school, Jason's right. The the cycle changes. Suddenly, these kids are educated, and their their whole family has better prospects, a hope for a better future. They generally live. They generally don't live in the communities where they teach. They generally will have four-wheelers or motorcycles that they ride out to the remote areas to teach, and then they ride back home. They usually live in, in decent-sized cities like Nakaome, where we're based, or Choloteca or similar type, maybe closer to El Salvador. These, but think, think about it. They've got jobs and benefits, so they are in pretty good situation, these teachers. They're not wealthy by any means. They're much better off than the families they do. Yeah. No, 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 no. Many of them have no toilets, no kitchen to prepare the lunch that we're providing. So the moms have to cook it at home, cook the rice at one home, the beans somewhere else, the milk somewhere else, and bring it to the school. No latrines. I mean, what, what they have is at best is latrines, outhouses. It's The school is a cinder block building and nothing more. It's just a cinder block structure. And many times it's a teacher, one teacher, teaching first, first through sixth grade could be 35, 40, 45 kids, she or he, teaching all of them, every grade level, all at the same time. That's how dedicated the Honduran Education Ministry is to providing teachers, bare minimum. Yes. And a kitchen. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. 
Don't Sorry. Go ahead. Minister to them, Mark. Minister to everybody. Together. And for, for many years, they were doing that for many years with for 135 kids. Not a small school. That was a lot. And that's the result of a generous sponsorship uh, from Roswell UMC yeah. and the giving of a lot of individuals in addition to the sponsorship by the, the mission team. Bereans is another one. I felt like far down Catholic. They've got something father you said. If you remember, I told you about the three siblings I met last week whose father died. The oldest boy is in ninth grade at that school. Another one at school that goes to ninth grade. And earlier this year, right now, they are tearing down a wall. They're taking a roof off a building. We're helping them with gifts that were made in Ron Hicks' memory, using those funds to help put a roof on that building so it can be used as a, as a classroom again. The oldest boy in that family, I think it's Christopher, but I'm not positive, uh, the, the fathers are taking turns showing up to demolish the wall and the roof and get things ready to build a new wall and new roof structures so that building can be used. The fathers are taking turns. This boy's father, his turn was coming up, and he had just died. And this boy, this ninth grade boy, Christopher, went and instead of being in class, as far as that corner is from where his classroom was right there, he was at the building, helping build, uh, build that building in place of his father who was supposed to be there that day, but he had died. It's an amazing work ethic that these people have. They want to work. They want to be able to support themselves. We together are helping them do that. It's an amazing thing. You ask yourself, are you doing enough? Yeah, yeah, we're doing some good stuff. We really are together. We're grateful for that. I'm happy to answer other questions. Dave, you're almost at your limit. <laughs> One particular region in southern Honduras near the El Salvador border, near the Pacific Ocean, the, the northern part of the country is doing okay because there's tourism. It's the Caribbean, Roatan, and cruise ships dock there, and the, the, the economics are very different in southern Honduras, but we are really in one I guess what you, we would refer to as a state of Honduras. One day maybe we'll expand beyond that, but there's still schools in that we haven't hit. We're in one particular region near the El Salvador. Thank you. Thank you, Jim, Phil. Yes. Well, one advantage that comes from being a preacher's kid is when you go home for lunch that day, you get to ask questions about the sermon, about what you heard. Now, sometimes it goes both ways. And I was really appreciative of Phil, you know, paying close attention this morning. And when he said the name Temper... <clears throat> Did you think angry, or did you think made stronger because it's been through hot and cold cycles? So I ask you to take that question out to wherever you're headed today. What someone says and what we hear often two very different things. And, um, you know, this morning I, I'm always appreciative of people who show up here. You never quite know where your heart is going to be led, but you can pretty much be assured that it's going to be led someplace you needed to go that day. So uh, as we go out today and think about the word temper and, uh, you know, where it fits in, in your day and, you know, tell somebody about it. They might be interested. may give you a chance to tell them about Lunches for Learning and uh, people who are living with a different set of questions than we do on a given day. Um, we've got two other quick announcements. Uh, Kevin, you're going to go last because you've got an action call to action. Um, there's going to be a special concert uh, at the end of the month. It's the last Sunday of the month. It's called Time Forgotten, Time Remembered. It's a concert about people, caregivers of those who were dealing with uh, people who were suffering from memory loss or Alzheimer's. And while when Kimi started talking about this concert last spring, initially got some pushback because do people want to hear about that? Is that going to, is it going to, you know, is that the right thing, way to start the season? 
And I have seen such an outpouring of sharing from caregivers and from families who have been touched by these diseases that it is, uh, it's going to be a very, very meaningful time. It is a Michael O'Neill uh, singer's thing, but I'm announcing it anyway as a, because I think it's going to be such an outreach. So if you know a caregiver, if there's somebody in your life and you want to treat them to this concert, the tickets are going to be cheap and um, you know we'll, we'll have them available on the website. Next month, we're going to have a speaker who's a cancer survivor. It is Movember, right? So if you want to grow a beard, next month we're meeting on the 7th. The Thursday is the as late as it can be. And uh, you can go ahead and start working on your beard on the uh, on uh, as soon as November kicks around, and we'll have a cancer survivor who will be speaking. Uh, he is from uh, Roswell, uh, our church, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what he can bring uh, bring to us. Uh, so, Kevin, take take us uh, take us to Monday. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. There was a couple questions over here. I saw this fancy yellow little ribbon. Oh, so are you campaigning? Are you politicizing or something like that? And I was assigned to shake down the group right by the golf committee, so I guess by that definition, I am doing a little politicizing here. But just as a quick reminder, and I appreciate you including in the announcement, and on Monday is the 22nd annual Malone Dodson Golf Tournament. So, you know, it's really a great time, great fellowship to go out there. Uh, some of us are signed up, like Art, you know, he's a leading guy that gets out there on the golf course. So still can do that, can sign up, can get paired up with some other folks. But even if you don't, don't want to play, people come out and volunteer, or just come out for fellowship, with, with, you know, just great time to be together. It's over at Woodmont Golf Course, so it's not too far away. Um, and there's breakfast there, there's, there, there's a lunch, and then call it a southern dinner, and afterwards, award ceremony, silent auction, that sort of thing. So again, fun time. Just a reminder out here, hope to see you there on Monday. Thanks, Kevin. And Phil, if you come pray us out. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. Let's pray together. Lord, there's a, we live in a broken world. There, there are hurting people out there in Honduras and Congo and Canada and Roswell, Georgia, and even in this room. So help us to be your ministers. Help us to think less of ourselves and listen to those around us. We want to be more like Christ. We ask your help. In doing that, thank you for the opportunity to gather today to share our faith, to be a church family together. Now let help us be the church. Well, with the church gathered today, help us to be the church scattered the rest of today. And it's in Jesus Christ we name. In name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.